1: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by Twinmotion, the simple real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Hey, guys. And this is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. It's our first episode back, uh, first big show. And we have a great guest uh, who I'll introduce in a second. But to kick this off, Michelle, when was the last time you've been to a movie theater?
2: Gosh, it's been at least a year and a half. It was definitely pre-COVID. And to be perfectly honest, I don't even remember what film i saw or what theater (laughs) i was in for that matter (laughs) (laughs)
1: jason what about you
0: it was a gosh a couple weeks back my son wanted me to take him to see whatever the new fast and the furious is Um, and it had it was the first time i was in the movie theater for probably years Um, so we walked in it was a complete shock there's all these recliner chairs with heated seats and tables and all this kind of <laughs> stuff it was pretty amazing i was i was blown away
1: coming into this i was trying to think when was the last time i have been in a theater and i literally cannot remember <laughs> obviously pre-covid uh couldn't think of the movie to save my life but yeah the the evolution in theaters has been fascinating to see you know they have bars now and um and the reclining seats with the seat warmers and some even have like service where they bring you drinks and food during the movie. Wow. I don't know if you guys have been to any of those, but I have uh, have not.
2: I I feel like that's the only movie theater experience we get anymore. I have to say, Jason, (laughs) you're pretty out of touch if you're just now getting acclimated and acquainted with um, recliner chairs and, you know, stadium seating and, and, you know, says the person with her first hit.
0: Right. So as a person with the first kid, give me a break here. Right.
2: (laughs) They've been been doing that, but they've been doing that for a few years now. Um, And Demetrius, I would say when we select what movie theater we're going to go to, and we don't go to the movies that often, to be honest, I mean, maybe, maybe three or four times a year tops, but when we go, if we have the choice to go to, you know, the smaller format um, theater that has all of the amenities, if you will, um, we mm-hmm. will choose that over like just a traditional uh, movie theater that we're all used to from the last ten to twenty years.
1: Yeah, if I do go, it and it's rare. It would only be for those huge blockbusters like the Marvels of the world, um, and we would go to the those big theaters that have all of the amenities and really make a thing out of it. So, yeah. but I love cool. movies.
0: I got I got to throw this in. The only movie that I refuse to not see in the theater will be the new Top Gun. I'll have to see it in a theater.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: I think we should do like a psychological study on why is it that that the three of us really don't go to the theater that often? I'm now starting to wonder, like, who goes? Like, who is the audience? (laughs) Because it's clearly not the three of us. And I, like Jason, am very selective about what movies I will see in the theater. There are some movies that I'm just like, there's no reason to go see that in a theater. You know, there's, there's some movies that you're like, yeah, absolutely, for the right quality and effect and sound and all that. You want to see it on the big screen. But there's a lot that I'm like, nah, I'll just wait till it comes out on, on uh, you know, whatever format and watch it from my living room.
0: Yeah, like all my wife's rom-coms. We can see those at home just fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: All right, so we have a guest with us that can probably answer some of those questions. Uh, he has a very deep experience and background in movie theater design. His design focus is the creation of theater architecture beyond simple function, architecture that elicits emotion, whether it's excitement, awe, contemplation, or comfort. His primary focus has been the creation of public spaces for assembly, entertainment, and hospitality, with a specific focus on movie theaters. Representative projects include cinemas across the country from national chains to family regional circuits. The theaters have been new construction, renovated, adaptive reuse, and historical standalone multiplex cinemas. The cinemas also vary from cinema-only venues to mixed-use entertainment venues, combining cinema, bowling, lounges, and restaurants. He is the principal... At uh, JKRP Architects, please help me welcome Robert McCall. Robert, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. It's uh, I'm hearing the three of you uh chat about it. I think I have some work to do to get you guys back out to the uh theaters. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, so we we have a a lot of questions for you uh, to talk about movie theaters and get an understanding of how you go about designing them, uh, what challenges you're finding in designing them, how COVID has played a role in it, and and sort of the evolution. And uh, when I was looking around for a guest for this, you guys stuck out like a sore thumb. Uh, You have a deep portfolio looking at movie theaters, which was very rare uh, in searching for this. Probably one of the only ones that I saw that had such a deep portfolio in movie theater design. To kind of kick this off, we're assuming this podcast is a historical catalog of the built environment when we have to restart civilization. So with that frame of mind, How would you describe to someone that's restarting civilization what a movie theater is?
3: So today it's basically, you know, and sort of talking about some of the things I hear my clients talk about is their job is not to, or we create buildings not to show movies. Basically, we create buildings for people to get out of the house and have an experience outside of their living room. You know, with all the different choices that people have, you don't need to go to a building 10 miles away, probably spend more money than you would if you do it on demand to actually see a movie you want. So the goal is to provide people with an experience, to have a communal experience, which is the key thing here, to watch something you're going to enjoy.
1: So at JKRP Architects, um, can you talk a little bit about the the company and and how? and what uh what you guys do and and then kind of how you guys got into movie theater design
3: sure um so um our company started in 1984 um i'm not that old i wasn't here <laughs> at that point i've been here for 25 years though um and so historically we do commercial work so our clients are basically for-profit developers shopping centers that include residential and, you know, just the various pieces of commercial about actually literally we're coming up on 30 years ago, we were doing a development, um, we're a Philadelphia based architecture firm. So we were doing a development in Philadelphia and we were doing the whole development. And that part of the development was a United artists theater. And the developer told United artists, I want you to use our architect to design your theater. And the experience and they said, yes, sure. And apparently we did a well enough job because we kept on working for them. But the key thing is during that experience, they taught us how to do a theater for them. There are a lot of very specific requirements, especially in terms of sound and projection. And back then really the focus was really about showing the movie. There was not quite the showmanship and the sort of like theater of the cinema building that there is now. I mean, so, um, they trained us, and we we have kept on working with them. They're now Regal um, that we still work with today, and our practice in terms of theater design has expanded. Um, theater, you had mentioned, there's there's a handful of architects across the country that specialize in this, which is really small considering it's nationwide.
0: Huge. Yeah.
3: So there's sort of an expertise that you know most of the theater exhibitors don't want to go through the process of training another architect on how to actually go about putting the building together.
1: What we know as a movie theater today didn't begin to emerge until the early 1900s. The concept evolved from the early spaces used for theatrical performances in ancient Greece, amphitheaters. Amphitheaters were semicircular structures constructed of wood initially and later stone, They were open to the sky with bank seating surrounding a raised stage. The craft grew in popularity spreading throughout Europe. However, expansion came to a screeching halt in England in 1642 behind a civil war. King Charles I had been in a bitter struggle with Parliament for supremacy, dissolving Parliament on several occasions. This led to the First English Civil War, during which time theatrical performances were outlawed. By 1646, Charles surrendered, was convicted of treason, sentenced, and executed in 1649. The monarchy was abolished, and the new English Commonwealth assumed control for what turned out to be a short-lived rule. Just 10 years later, the monarchy was restored and Charles II, son of King Charles I, was crowned. As a reward for loyalty to the crown, Charles II issued licenses to two theater companies and interest towards theaters resumed in England. During the war, theaters continued to grow and evolve in France, and by the 1660s, classism had imposed itself on French theaters both in artistry and spatial design. Previously, theater companies were traveling groups that performed outdoors or in temporary structures, even homes. By the 1660s, permanent theaters began to emerge. There were now covered spaces, with stages designed for changeable scenery, equipment, and prep areas. The classical influence contributed to a more ornate design. The ornate French theaters inspired the design of permanent theaters in England. However, this growth was hindered yet again when the Parliament in the Kingdom of Great Britain enacted the Licensing Act of 1737. Free speech in theater was seen as a threat to the government, and with its growing popularity, it was thought that it could facilitate the spread of revolutionary ideas. So, the licensing act was a way to mitigate what was being said about the British government, censoring all plays from 1737 to 1968. At the same time, royals did enjoy the theater, so they granted a series of royal licenses to companies that were favorable to the crown. These became known as theaters royal, which were limited in theme and to a neoclassical architectural style. By the end of the century, the facades of many city theaters were built in the more imposing classical style. Some even had porticos, which was primarily for show, but it did also provide coverage from poor weather, as wealthy and prominent patrons descended from their carriages into the theater. There was a brief decline in popularity for theaters in the early 1800s, primarily due to poor performances and rowdy crowds, but the Theater's Act removed licensing restrictions in 1843 and inspired a surge of speculators seeking profit. Theaters became bigger, with grander front of house space and more luxurious social areas. Rectangular viewing galleries were replaced by horseshoe-shaped balconies that wrapped the stage for improved sight lines, which was intended to elevate the experience and attract the middle class. The new balcony also segregated classes, financially by the cost of tickets and physically through its separation, including circulation routes. The wealthy entered through well-lit entrances, grand staircases, and rich carpets. The cheaper seats entered through smaller side or rear entrances, with simple staircases and public areas. In the U.S., the inception of moving film emerged in 1879, when Edward Maveridge, an English photographer, pioneered work in photographic studies of motion and projection. Using multiple cameras, he captured motion through stop-motion photographs and his zoopraxiscope, which projected the images. A further advanced device, the phantoscope, by American engineer Charles Francis Jenkins, surfaced in June of 1894 in Richmond, Indiana, when Jenkins projected a film for his family, friends, and reporters. Jenkins' classmate and partner, Thomas Armat, worked with him to improve the design but the duo parted ways after disagreements over patent issues, and Jenkins sold his interest to Armat, who then sold his rights to Thomas Edison. Yes, that Thomas Edison. Edison marketed the projector under the name Vitascope. It was used at a public screening in New York City beginning April 23, 1896. Then on July 26, 1896, the first permanent home for movies in the United States was opened in New Orleans, Louisiana. The theater was called Vitascope Hall. The cost for admission? 10 cents. Surprisingly to us now, 10 cents was costly for some. And Harry Davis, a master showman and one of the country's most successful theater managers, envisioned that this entertainment should be affordable for everyone. In 1905, Davis and his partner John P. Harris opened a five-cent movie theater in a converted Pittsburgh storeroom, naming it the Nickelodeon and setting the style for early movie theaters. The first film was a 10-minute thriller called The Great Train Robbery. It consisted of a train holdup, gunfights, and a chase scene on horseback. At the end, there was a bonus scene where the bandit pointed his revolver and shot directly into the camera, which meant directly at the audience. This blew the audience's minds. In the 1920s and 30s, several movie studios acquired and developed theater chains. The so-called Big Five chains were owned by Paramount, Warner, Lowe's, which owned Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Fox, and RKO. They were ultimately broken up in 1948 after an antitrust lawsuit. But during this period, as movie revenues exploded, independent promoters and movie studios raced to build super cinemas. Many were designed in a radical new artistic style known as Art Deco. It combined modern styles that were influenced by the bold geometric forms and bright colors of cubism with fine craftsmanship and rich materials. This style represented luxury, exuberance, and reflected the social and technological progress of the time. Art Deco became synonymous with the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Interestingly, interiors were traditionally red because human eyes are less sensitive to red, which made the room appear darker. It provided a strong contrast to enhance engagement with the film. Red is also believed to stimulate emotion, which could further enhance audience connection to the actors. Technological advancements included giant screens, stereophonic sound, and air conditioning, which attracted patrons for comfort in the summer periods. Movie theater popularity was tumultuous in response to economic downturns, war times, and the invention of the television. Some movie theaters were also challenged with instances of unruly customers and violence in theaters. Most notably, on July 20th, 2012, during a midnight screening of the film The Dark Knight Rises, at a Century movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, a mass shooting occurred killing 12 and injuring 70 others. While just a small sampling, a survey of 250 people suggests that audiences weren't demanding changes in theater design and operations despite these events. In the survey, 34% of moviegoers said that they believe theater lobbies should have security and metal detectors, but only 13% of respondents were willing to pay $3 more per ticket to fund the change. Furthermore, there doesn't appear to be evidence that these events hurt ticket sales. Considering another shooting on July 23rd, 2015 at the Grand Theater in Lafayette, Louisiana, 85% of the people surveyed said that the Lafayette attack would have no impact on their movie habits. Movie theaters are facing an unprecedented number of challenges today. Theaters are competing with busier lifestyles, an array of entertainment options, live entertainment, cable television, and streaming services, particularly those with first release deals, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. A global shutdown to prevent the spread of the virus restricted public gatherings, closing movie theaters for a year while streaming platforms surged. As the world grapples with living with the virus now, the intimate and enclosed nature of movie theaters may not be a desirable option of entertainment in the age of social distancing. But why do we go to movies? For most people, it's a social event a shared experience with their family, friends, and community. After a year of a global hiatus and continued social distancing, the question is, how exactly will this space further evolve to continue to deliver on that purpose? It's still too early to tell how successful movie theaters will be at adapting to their new challenges, but it will undoubtedly be another race to redesign the future of movie theaters and a significant challenge to inspire a return to the big screen. How would you say you've seen movie theater design evolve over that time and maybe things that you have learned uh, in working with uh, United Artists?
3: It's It's evolved a lot, basically, and it's actually evolved in a good way for designers because... The first movie theaters that we would do, we would hear time after time. It's not about the building. People are going there to see the movie. We don't care what the lobby looks like. We don't care about the amenities. People go because they want to see the movie. And the reason why is back then is if you wanted to see the movie, you had to go to the theater. You know, when we first started, which is making me feel old, there was VHS (laughs) tapes. There wasn't DVD yet. And so basically, if you didn't see the movie in the movie theater, you were going to wait nine months to a year to go to Blockbuster and watch it on a not a flat screen TV on a, you know, a different format, horrible tube TV. So back then, it was the only game in town and theaters knew that. So the focus was we want to have good presentation in the theater itself. But even like the theater presentation wasn't what it could be because they didn't have to make it as spectacular. But then... Of course, as time goes on, DVD and of course, you know, pay-per-view and now streaming, they cannot rest on their laurels anymore. So everything that sort of went along, you know, we started by saying, well, let's do stadium seating because it's going to give that experience that there's not a bad seat in the house. And let's make sure that all those screens are getting larger and larger because now we're competing with people watching it at home on TVs that are not junk. You know, then... As all the options for folks to watch it at home, every few years, it's like, well, let's try this. So, you know, the latest one um, Jason mentioned, which I can't believe you haven't been to a recliner theater. I know it sounds like you have young children, <laughs> um, are recliners, and recliners is, has been huge. And the thing about recliners is prior to recliners, we've spent our entire existence for movie theater operators cramming as many seats as we can into a building. And now for the last five, six years, all we're doing are taking seats out, putting less seats in, which is very difficult for us to swallow sometimes. But so it's not about the sheer volume of numbers. It's about the experience because we're competing with your experience sitting on your couch.
0: Well, that's what's funny because that's one of the first things I thought about when I walked in was the fact that like the volume capacity was so much smaller. Right. And so you start looking at it, It's like how do you generate enough revenue to do these types of things based off of so many showings a day or whatever. And obviously the past year and a half is a little different, but that was one of the very first things I thought about when I walked in.
3: It's very counterintuitive. And when we first yeah. started doing it, it was like, I can't believe this actually works because, you know, the first wave of it was to take existing theaters and they'll say the large auditorium of an existing theater had 300 seats. We would renovate it, and you're going to lose 60% of your seats. And wow. you go wow. through it, and you take a building with 3,500 seats, and you bring it down to 1,500 seats. Yet, the numbers prove time and time again that the attendance would increase because more people were going. Oh. All the shows were sold out on the weekends, and it started bleeding over to the weekday shows. So it's- Interesting.
2: Well, the other big, I mean, yeah, because economically, if you look at what happened to the ticket sale prices. It went from being, you know, $12 to now $30. So it's, and and the other thing too, is just the reservation system. So most of these types of theaters, you're no longer just looking at the movie time and then showing up, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and standing in line and buying your ticket. Now you're going online and reserving your seat within the theater Sure. And it now it now shifts to like an event as though you were going to a show, literally a show, right, where you're saying, OK, showtime starts at X, Y, Z. I have a reserved ticket in a reserved seat. And in addition to the ticket sales, you have now this food and beverage service that didn't exist before, namely alcohol. Uh, so the alcohol sales within the movie theater so yeah, I mean it's like you lost half the seats to your point, but at the same time you captured all of this other revenue that that theaters weren't capturing before. Absolutely, and that, even that is the, the person that actually has no experience in, in this at all. <laughs> I just, uh, <laughs> just, it's just an observation.
3: <laughs> and it, absolutely, and one of the things you know, from the time we did our very first movie theater, in addition to being told it's not about the building, it's about, it's about the, the movie. But people have always said, and it's always been sort of like the main thing is, we were basically not a movie theater selling popcorn. We're selling popcorn and we're going to let you watch a movie while we're selling you our popcorn. So now that is even increased because, you know, in terms of the movie, the movie theater exhibitors share the revenue with the studios. They don't share the popcorn concession, now bar, liquor, food sales. So, you know, they really focus on getting you there and you're there to see the movie, but all those other experiences that keep on adding more wrinkles to it.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your process through design things that you, you think about and and your approach to designing a movie theater?
3: Sure. Absolutely. So it always starts out with the client because of all our clients, while well, they all do the same basic function of we build a building that shows a movie and there's other sort of pieces of it they all go about it in a different way in terms of operations so while our goal is to always have this fantastic experience it really starts like many other things it's like the nuts and bolts the spatial issues you know one of the keys to laying out a movie theater is moving from people from point a to point b and they don't realize it, but we're controlling where they go. We're controlling what they see. For example, you know, when we bring you in the front door, the first thing we want you to see is the concession stand right in front of your face so that <laughs> you don't get to that theater before you see popcorn. And so as a diagram, there's certain a process that we want to have people go through. But also you have to keep in mind that we have several hundred people coming and going in different directions throughout different you know every 45 minutes a movie's letting out or people are coming in going different directions so it's sort of like how do you control people leaving and when they're leaving do you want them to go back through the bar or there was a time where we would before all the bars were in the lobbies we used to have separate sort of egress paths so we would shoot them out of the building so fast they wouldn't even <laughs> see the people coming in. Now we don't do that anymore. Now we we really try to control you know or nudge or gently make people go and the other side of that is aside from just the sheer function of numbers of people we want to sort of design the experience for them a movie theater in essence is a big dumb box if you look at a plan of a movie theater (laughs) 70 percent of it are theaters that are black boxes so when you get to the lobby and this goes on the outside as well as the inside. That's where you're going to focus your experience on. So that's where you're going to now have your bar, your seating, your lounge furniture, all that kind of good stuff. We have some theater operators that having, are having open kitchens now. So, again, when you walk in, if they're delivering food to your seat, they want you to see Like, look, there are actually real people making real food. It's not coming out of the microwave oven out of the back room <laughs> like it did 20 years ago. So that's kind of like the nuts and bolts of it. But then depending on the situation, is this an urban theater in New York City, which you would create one thing, or is it a a theater that is in a residential neighborhood, a lot of families, that type of thing. So you start to modulate the finishes, the overall aesthetic, and that sort of experience based on the people who are going to come into the theater.
1: And when you talk about finishes, you're talking about the level of... um... Finish material, the the quality and, and types of finishes.
3: Absolutely. And while they, they're all elevated and actually it's amazing what nice finishes you can get now for not a lot of money, I guess, cause it's all yeah. coming from uh, other people there. Are, but, um, yeah, so, you know, it's, there are, you know, if you're building a movie theater in New York city, the amount of business it's going to do is three times that of a suburb outside of pick someplace in the middle of the country. And all that's factored into how much the theater exhibitor is planning on putting into the theater, you know, and there're also their different expectations and then again, if you're doing a theater in New York City, there are five other theaters within ten blocks that you have to one up, which you know it's the nature of the business, right? You right. want people to say, "Wow, did you see the new movie theater over there? It has this, this, and this, and it's like way better than the one I've been going to, where if you're in the middle of a cornfield in <laughs> somewhere, And the nearest movie theater is 80 miles away. I'm not saying you're going to do something not nice, but you're also not going to break the bank trying to make, you know, a Taj Mahal in the middle of nowhere.
1: That makes sense. We're going to take a quick break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. As you know, here on Spaces Podcast, we explore how external forces shape the built environment. Which is why we love what the architecture firm Xiao has done with the micro library Fibonacci in Kolan Park, Indonesia. The micro library is designed to coexist with nature all around it. You'd almost miss it if you weren't looking for it. But initially, Xiao struggled to get the project approved. So the company turned to real time ArcViz tool TwinMotion to present the design to clients, placing the structure within the context of a lush green park. This directly led to the design being signed off, and Florian was one happy customer. In his own words, he said, quote, with Twinmotion, there's not fumbling with settings, then pressing render, waiting, and reiterating until you're happy with the result. The changes appear directly on screen in real time, and the exported image or animation looks like what you've seen before. No surprises. To download your exclusive free trial, head to Twinmotion.link spaces. That's twinmotion.link slash spaces. For all of us here on this on this in this conversation, we tend to walk into buildings, I'm sure, and see things and like, oh, that's so cool. How do you do that? Or how would I do that? Jason, from your perspective on the finishing side, when yeah. you've walked into a theater does anything jump out from your perspective of like, Oh my God, I couldn't imagine taking on something like that or I would love
0: funny. I was thinking about that when uh, he was talking about the design for one. No, everything for the most part is pretty simple. There's not a lot that seems overly complex. I think the one thing that you look (laughs) at is the abuse things would receive, right? With the amount of traffic and stuff, because in theaters, I think because of all the acoustical properties, you have a lot of carpet. So uh, from a stain resistant side from a wear resistant side you know from all those different types of things, but I think it's not very complicated from the finish side. What I would ask though is it always feels very vagacy right so is it like <laughs> is that you know is that just really based on the areas we're in or does that change a lot from place to place I'm sure you guys understand what I'm saying very very large pattern carpets
2: you yeah, know sure. that
0: type of stuff and what the thought is there but no from from a, from a complexity standpoint not that big a deal at all hmm. at least in my opinion.
3: The uh the vacancy it depends where you are. Although I will sure. say that historically, and, and I love all my theater clients, historically they picked the most unattractive carpets because one of them <laughs> once told me, and they're you know, because again you mentioned it, the volume of people carrying food and hot dogs yeah. with mustard on it that go through these buildings, you know, they're pushing several million people through some of these buildings every year. And right. so while it has to look like it's there are nice finishes. The finishes are all hardcore. You know, like the carpet is hardcore. One of my clients once said is like, I want you to pick out a carpet where I can spill a hot dog with mustard and have my child throw up on it. and (laughs) Nobody's going to notice because it's so like crazy. And so you, you won't see carpets with a lot of white. You don't see a lot of solid colors, that pattern sort of carpet, which sometimes is a bit of a design challenge, of course, but um, of course, goes
2: with well, the there's a light. yeah the it carpet the carpet's almost like carpeted concrete right it's also super super commercial hard packed yeah um right. but but my question is you know there's historically like when you think back to movie theaters from the nineties like when we were when we were kids Demetrius and Jason there was an element of cheesiness to them, right? It was like over the top with the neon and the bright lights and yes. and like the circus style carpet, you know, on the topic of carpet. How much today, like when you're designing and just that design element, how much is that that cheesiness, um, I'll use that term, staying in future design? Or is it now shifting to something that's a little more contemporary and um, and, and not that?
3: Um, it's definitely shifting towards contemporary. And for years we've been fighting that. There was, you know, and this was back when theaters did not have competition. So th- it was the same palette. Somebody said that every theater has to have some art deco. And you know, I got news for you. I haven't put teal or peach in any building <laughs> for decades, and I, I'm not a huge fan of it. But like everything, once you start competing with other experiences and people can do have other choices for entertainment, then you have to start upping your game. And, you know, a lot of times we've heard that we want this to feel more restaurant, more lounge, you know, more hotel lobby, ticket booths became concierge desks, that type of thing. So the whole experience has been elevated because now it's not now it's part of a whole night out. And you had mentioned it's not inexpensive. So where it used to be you would go to a restaurant and have a nice meal, and then you'd go to the theater just to see the movie, and then you'd leave. Now we want people to stay there. So we try to bring all those elements of design. But having said that, is different operators focus on different things. We did a local uh, independent operator right outside Philadelphia, and this was a theater that we just put in. It was in a strip mall, and we did structural modifications because Paramount is we want the movie experience, big screens, and the presentation of the movie to be premium. But once you go in, the finishes are very casual, you know, a lot of soft finishes because this theater is wants to be like the locals theater. Down the street, there's another movie theater that's big and glossy and shiny and loud that they don't want to be that theater. So it kind of depends on the client and who they're trying to get through the, their doors.
0: Good point.
1: Touching back, you talked a little bit about this in in some of your discussion about the design process, but what would you say is sort of the most complex part of designing a movie theater?
3: Um, I think, and maybe I gloss over it as the most important, is the theater box, right? Okay. And because it's complex if you do it for the first time, if you do it for the 10,000th time, it's kind of automatic, but really the overall layout of the theater in terms of you typically get the number of screens from the client, but then in terms of the size of the screens varies. And there's a very specific reason why theaters have, you know, two large houses and then they go smaller and smaller and smaller. It's because just how movies work, you know, when the movie comes out the opening weekend, you're putting it on the two large auditoriums and then two weeks out, you move it down to the the smaller ones and the smaller ones because theaters, when they sign deals with the studios, they're required to play a movie for a certain amount of weeks. So if a movie doesn't do well after four weeks out, they can't just say, Oh, we're going to stop playing it. So many cases, the small auditorium is just as important as the large auditorium, because you don't want to be forced to watch a movie. Three people are going to see in a three hundred seat auditorium. That's where those smaller auditoriums come in, which are now we design those equally as the presentation is just as good. But, In terms of the box itself, the proportions of the box, it's paramount that we have a wall-to-wall screen. So when you go in, you talk about some of the older movie theaters from the 90s or 80s, a lot of them were larger cinemas that they put the twins, or they put the demising wall right down the center of another one, and you had like these horrible bowling alleys that (laughs) were nothing short of just being mean to the viewer. Yeah. <laughs> but now like that is definitely of the past. Like the first thing is presentation is king. Like once you're in that that box, that theater, the screens are wall to wall, the sound is premium, the stadium seating there's not a bad viewing angle in it. You're in a recliner where you have footroom. Like that's the first thing. And we do that a million times a day, but that is, you know, technically, if you don't know how to do it, that's the hard piece, but that's where it really starts.
1: Yeah. From that perspective, I imagine the sound is a difficult part as well. Do you guys have a consultant, uh, audio consultant that, that comes in? And does that impact the way that you design the space as far as height and depth of the, the room?
3: In terms of two levels of sound, what we do is in terms of the building's architect is we make sure all the sound within the auditoriums doesn't bleed over to the next auditorium. Hmm. So, we really think about sound isolation. And so, you know, like the typical construction between two auditoriums, you typically have like two parallel stud racks, and there is like four layers of drywall on one and three layers of drywall (laughs) on the other. These things are like hardcore. And yet, sometimes you still hear sound go through because, as fat as we make those walls, the piece we don't control, which is I think the best part of the movie is the sound in the auditorium It's really driven by the exhibitor. You know, the, one of the trends now is the Dolby Atmos system where you have 50 speakers all in the ceiling and the wall and these things just crank. And <laughs> while we don't design those pieces and the design of the, you know, all the amplifiers and specifications of the speakers – Is outside of our scope we accommodate it all so we sort of get all the cut sheets the locations of the speakers because you have to integrate that in if you're doing something interesting on the auditorium sidewalls and ceiling you have to integrate the speakers as part of it like we get all of their sound we integrate it but then we try to keep it in the box
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) it seems super difficult to to coordinate all of that and to try to mitigate that sound transfer. Sound is probably one of the hardest things besides water to try to control.
3: I will say that during construction, that's the one thing that we watch like crazy because if you have a serious sound leak in between auditoriums after the building opens, you're never going to fix it because it's just way too complicated. So part of our documentation is we have a whole set of really very specific specifications and details on how to install drywall what you can do and what you can't do. You know, you have to overlap the seams. You have to scribe it to the underside of the deck. We have specifications of the seal on the top and bottoms. We'll cut slabs in between the parallel stud racks so the low frequency doesn't progress. Huh. It gets really complicated if we're especially in urban situations where you see a lot where movie theaters have residential or commercial below. The amount of effort that we do to isolate that sound from the adjacent theater, but especially from other tenants, you know, we've done spring loaded isolated ceilings with six layers of drywall over a 70,000 square foot building. So this is like, it's a big deal. And with all that effort, when it's being installed, we have to pay attention to the details because when the carpenters are putting it together, sometimes if they don't know, that it's important that this piece of drywall goes past this one and this one butts in just the right thing. And there's a sound like we can going back and fix it is fixing. It's impossible. So the key is to catch it while it's going in.
0: And there's a ton of effort. I mean, just on the multifamily, everything that that translates to, you guys are doing it on a whole other level, but it is one of the hardest things to mitigate. And it almost seems like no matter what you do, it's still never enough is kind of the, the discussions that usually take place. I mean, I even remember the building the building that we're in now and I was walking through with the general contractor because of manufacturing we had. And I'm like, I don't think this is enough. You know what I mean? And it's like, this doesn't look right. And, and no matter how much we beefed it up or he said he beefed it up, you know, it still wasn't enough. Um, and to your point, you can't break back into that wall and really fix anything because every penetration you take care of at that point is just another
3: sound leak that's about to happen we had a project several years back we didn't build the original building but there was an imax in the theater and above the theater was a residential building and the unfortunate person who bought the condominium above the imax theater was never happy i mean it was (laughs) to the point where he has little chalk keys on his bookcase would vibrate off the edge over time and so we were hired to go back and try to remediate this and i want to say that three or four times and No small effort. Like we're talking about, we took down IMAX screens and put up drywall and new ceilings and the whole thing. Eventually, where it was going is that they were actually going to buy the person's condominium. Wow. And just mothball it because
2: we couldn't fix it. Wow. So I remember on this topic of vibrations, um, I've been in movie theaters watching a movie. Maybe it's a more quiet, subdued scene. And maybe in the movie theater next to you is some... Action packed, and there have been times where you can actually feel the movie theater next door. Is that a thing of the past? I mean, are we designing out of that or or do you think that'll just kind of continue to happen?
3: Truthfully, it will continue to happen because um every time we make a wall fatter and thicker and slabs deeper, everybody wants louder sound in the auditorium, and it's all about bass, and there's also you know, there's this kind of this law of diminishing returns, right? Because every time we, we add three layers of drywall to a wall, at some point, there's kind of a delicate balance where, yeah, you will sort of feel a vibration from the adjacent theater, or there is a little bit of a sound bleed. But it's to the point where how much do we want to spend on separating these theaters versus how many... People who are really going to be upset that they're going to ask for their money back, or it's really going to spoil the experience in the adjacent theater. And actually, the way movies are going now, most of the movies in movie theaters now are loud. So, as long as you have two loud ones next to each other, (laughs) sort of like quiet dramas, the English patient movies type things aren't really in theaters that much.
1: Michelle, and then you have uh, directors like Christopher Nolan who cranks his audio for whatever reason yes. to the point you can't
3: hear anyone. Right. And you know what? That's, that, that's a good thing because if you want that experience, you're probably not going to get that exact experience at home. You can turn your volume up at home. You're not getting a Dolby Atmos system where every speaker is independently operated for this like really immersive sound.
1: Yeah. When a client comes to you, do they have a specific request of how many screens they want to have and the size of the building? Or is there also a discussion of, you know, how much land is available in whatever site that is or center shopping center? Is that part of it as well of trying to find a balance of how you size this space? Or is it very specific from the beginning?
3: Um, it's a little bit of a both, but depending, like we have a lot of clients that we actually help out in this process. So they'll get a site from a a landlord or a landowner and they see the size of the site, but they don't really know in terms of what size theater we can get here. And then there's a parking component as well. But generally what we do need to get from them is to make this site profitable. How many auditoriums are you expecting to get on this site? It's really never less than eight generally no more than 16. So sort of based on that, we'll help them with a very rough plan just to get the footprint of the building saying, okay, here's this building. You're going to get 12 screens. It's going to be 50,000 square feet. And this is kind of what we think you're going to get. And what it does is it gives them the information to take the next step with the landowner saying, okay, because all like the size of the building and just the general seat count And where they are, they're going to have an idea of how many people they're going to be able to get through there and figure out how much can they pay in rents and how it's going to work in terms of the overall success of the theater. So the very beginning pieces of that will help them out with a lot of times. Sometimes we're given the site and we're like, okay, we need 12 screens on here. Just make it happen, too. Yeah.
1: Does parking play a component in restricting you on size as well or vice
3: versa? Uh, yes, absolutely. Although now that our cinemas have basically half the seats they used to, it's not that big <laughs> yeah. of a deal, right? Yeah. But it was actually, you know, especially for like the larger cinemas, cinemas attached to malls, cinemas in big retail centers, you know, parking, you know, parking is nobody gets money. You know, parking's not part of the pro forma that is on the income side, right? Mm-hmm. So basically parking is always at a minimum. And, when we had way more seats, there was always this balance you would play that the cinema operates within the shopping mall. So you say, well, the cinema's peak times are really when most of the stores' peak times are during Mm -hmm. the day, the cinema's peak times are in the evening, that type of thing. And usually it winds up being, I've gone to plenty of zoning meetings where they would ask for the worst case scenario and it was basically on um, Black Friday or you know before the holidays where everybody is shopping and then they're going to the movies afterwards. And then when you size the parking lot for that, you go to a mall, it's empty the other 365 days a year. So yeah. there's always that sort of balance. But really, since the seat counts have really been going down, it has not that been that big of a deal, a huge thing. Yet. And also retail is struggling as well. So I yeah. long for those days where it was a problem, but <laughs> – Yeah,
2: for a while you know from a land acquisition standpoint and again my expertise is in identifying underutilized real estate that we can convert into residential and or mixed-use projects Um, for a while there you know movie theaters were kind of on the out Uh, and maybe to a certain degree they they still are I think there are fewer theaters than there were a handful of years ago and you know, we kind of looked at those as really, uh, I guess, sexy sites because they were large land areas, relatively simple to just demo using our guests uh, term, the, the big black box. Uh, and it was typically a pretty large sea of parking. Um, similarly to movie theaters, you know, take take something like a bowling alley. Bowling alleys are, are pretty similar, you know, one giant box and a lot of parking and those, you know, and typically on larger pieces of land, you're, you're generally going to be on a four or five, six acre land at, as a bare minimum. So from a redevelopment standpoint, those were and continue to be good sites. Um, and I think you see that that in other uh, locations as well, which maybe, you know, so I guess a, a good question is how much ground up movie theater development is actually happening today versus just maybe refurbishing or repurposing from kind of the old movie theater format to now, you know, what we're talking about with the stadium seating, maybe less seating, putting a bar in that sort of thing.
1: And we talked about in your bio, uh, the mixed use entertainment. So I imagine that's part of it as well.
3: Yeah, I think the the ground-up theater work we're doing, well, we're not doing any ground-up theater work at the moment because of where we are, (laughs) but the the ground-up theater work that we've been doing for the last number of years, to be quite honest, is they're usually attached to um, large mixed-use developments where there's a big residential component, but especially, you know, like... we used to call the lifestyle center, but, but, you know, there is the, uh, the commercial component and usually the theater winds up anchoring the commercial component. The commercial component really is the theater and a bunch of restaurants, not a lot of retail anymore, you know, cause it does not really happen, but it's basically something, it's sort of a function to sell the residential. Because people want that urban experience, they want to walk to the restaurant, and they, you know, they're generally recreating the the downtown experience where you have the main street going right down the center of the restaurant and retail with the theater, with the theater at the end. That, in terms of the ground up, because that's a really vital part to make that happen. Aside from that, and especially coming in out of the pandemic, is um, there's an abundance of theater sites. Um, it's always easier or less expensive if you find a good site at a good location, and it's a building. Even if it's an outdated building, modifying an existing building to have all the new amenities of a of a modern one is always going to be easier. And now, coming out of the pandemic, where so many of the weaker sort of exhibitors have disappeared, you know, it's like only the strong have survived. So what we're seeing now is. We're fairly busy, but we're not really doing a heck of a lot because, well, we're everybody's kind of doing musical chairs. A lot <laughs> of people walked away from leases. Other people are moving into the leases and renegotiating the rates. So our clients are moving from one building to the other, and they're not really doing anything dramatic because the buildings they're moving into were actually pretty good, but we're doing like little tweaks, like if a certain exhibitor specialty is this kind of bar or this kind of experience, we'll make sure the new building feels like theirs, but... Just because there's an abundance of theaters and, you know, it sort of is an extension of even pre-pandemic, you know, while there was a time where the theater was the only game in town to see a movie, it's now a theater has to have a certain level before it is going to stick around. Like, so like the weaker ones that were just showing movies that weren't great places to visit have not been doing well and won't, won't exist for much longer.
1: Uh, you hinted at a little bit with uh, the, the, covid and pandemic has has that influenced design at all maybe material uh, selection um spacing or anything like that
3: uh you know for the recliners the recliners made it much easier just because in many cases the original like six foot separation was already built into how we space recliners just that mm. you know they modulated their um Reservation software that if you and your guest book two seats, it automatically blocked out the seats on both sides of you, creating that mm. distance, which depending on where you are, if that's even existing now. But oh, and then the other thing is, and this is something that we're carrying forward into our newer designs, but we also renovated some existing ones, was the HVAC system. Mm. Because buildings are assembly buildings and just how we have always designed them, there's a big fresh air component to the design of any movie theater. I mean, I don't want to get technical, but you know the, <laughs> the, the rooftop units have CO2 sensors in them. So they know how many people by breathing out, how many people are in the auditorium and that modulates the fresh air. So if you have a big 300 seat auditorium with only two people in it, it's going to close the dampers and there'll be less fresh air when you put 300 people in it. It knows there's 300 people in it and so there's more fresh air. But in addition to that, we're increasing the fresh air, the air changes. And in some of them, there is the uh, bipolar ionization technique, which is something that you can retrofit existing duct work. It makes the particles heavy and easy to be picked up by HEPA filters. So that's just another thing. So while... God forbid, I don't ever want to say we're going to go through this again, but in terms of (laughs) mechanical systems going forward, that's the one thing that from COVID we are sort of carrying forward for future designs. And it's some cases it's just good practice.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree on that one. Are there any other trends or techniques that we haven't talked about that are kind of emerging or that you guys are looking at really incorporating?
3: Um, it's really and it's kind of all over the place for example we talked about amenities outside the auditoriums you know the bars well at bowling alleys there's a larger games and so forth inside the auditoriums aside from just having fantastic presentation there are some theaters who are actually extending and it depends on the movie but there's content where you can actually extend the movie from the screen up sidewalls of the theater, so you now have projectors projecting onto the sidewalls. And how that works is, if you're wow. watching Mission Impossible, the content of the movie will be on the screen in front of you, but along with from the studio, along with that content is sort of um, peripheral content. So it will be sort of quasi blurred or extension of the scene, so you really feel immersed in it. That's something that it's been around for a little bit, but we're actually just finishing a theater that has it. And the interesting thing about that is I'm not sure if you if you've seen any of the things where people are projecting onto buildings where they mm-hmm. and so you can map digital projection. So when you have this projector on the sidewall projecting to the opposite wall, it knows to cut out around the chair rail around the exit sign, that type of thing. So it really has a feeling like the entire wall above the chair rail is an extension of the screen. And while if you look at it, you're not going to watch the sidewall, but if you're watching the the main head wall, it's definitely an immersive experience. And then the next thing to that is something that it's been around for a while, but every major chain in most of the urban areas have the 4DX where you go in and you sit in, it sprays stuff on you and shakes the seat <laughs> and blows air on you and all that kind of good stuff, which we're doing a lot.
1: Wow. That's uh that's all set up for your Top Gun trip, Jason. That immersive experience.
0: I can't wait, man. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right. When uh do you guys have any other ones?
2: yeah, well, so I wanted to ask a question, and it's a it's a bit of a grim question, but um obviously, there have been over the last few years some tragedies that have occurred in movie theaters um, with shooters and things of that nature. has is that um discussed when when a client comes and they're saying, okay, we're we're designing something from ground up. I mean, are there new exit strategies or things that are being put into place to address
3: um this issue uh yes and it it definitely does come up but in terms of um the theater design if you're following all the egress requirements for assembly there always are multiple exits out of the theater a lot of it winds up being operations uh pre-show sort of pieces so people know exactly i'm not sure if you've been to a theater recently where part of the pre-show is it makes a point to point out where the exits are and that type of thing. It's one of those things that you're always going to be in a room with two or three exits. You can only design so much for any sort of extreme situations, you know? So it's, you know, it's sort of not shortcutting those things and education and operations within the theater venue itself.
1: This has been a great conversation, Bob. Um, one last thing for you is: if someone's taking on a theater project, what's one thing that comes to your mind? I'm sure there's a laundry list, but what's one thing that you would try to get across to somebody to consider or advise them to think about when they're taking on a theater design project?
3: To know who's going to who who are you designing it for? Where are you in the world? What part of the country are you in? What's important in that part of the country where your competition is sort of like, you know, the, the theater's not designed in a vacuum. You know, you can modulate a lot of big things and many small things to really make, because again, with the theater experience, we want to get people out of their houses, off the couches. So it's really about that experience. And that experience really needs to feel like it's catered to the people who are going to use it. A lot of a lot of sort of like the regional theaters you really try to make it very clear that this is your hometown theater, you know, that type of thing. And they try to have local content and that type of thing. But, you know, yes, the theater has to work. It has to be spectacular or whatever, but really know your audience. Great tip.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining us. Um, tons of great content and information. Jason, Michelle, thank you for joining me. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we will talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this podcast episode. Don't forget to visit twinmotion.link slash spaces today and try Twin Motion for free. That's all for this episode. But keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G A B L Media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend. And follow us on social media. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. Tim, you want to talk a little bit about the process and sort of your approach to designing a space when you you take on an adaptive reuse? First, you've got to fall in love with the building, (laughs) right? You're going to
4: have a relationship with this thing. And it's just like you met one, somebody in one of those craft breweries. And you got to understand that these buildings have two paths. One is just the physical artifact. And the other is its soul. It's what happened inside those walls, who was there, what they did. And in order to explore that, you need to do research on the building. But as you do the research, you need to follow these little rabbit holes that develop. And then suddenly you have this new family of characters, one
1: with heroes, one with villains, side players, dysfunctional characters. It's really quite amazing and then using that, you can tell the story in your design. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon.
4: Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders. Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with BuildSmart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick Mclaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I. Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe, Five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture
1: firm.